At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email campbelllawreporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. So, hello, my name is Jenna Nichols, and I am the co-managing partner for Education Law Pro Bono and a host for the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. I am joined tonight with three wonderful panelists who find education law critical to North Carolina, Professor Lukasik, Ms. Jenkins, and Professor Glazier. Each panelist has dealt with education law in their professional careers, allowing them to present a unique view to this hallmark case, Leandro v. State. Professor Lukasik attended the University of North Carolina School of Law, where she went to litigate for boards of education. Her career, she advocated for members of the education system, especially children. She joined Campbell Law in 2009 has been helping young lawyers find their professional voices ever since. Ms. Jenkins attended Wake Forest University School of Law. Then after graduating, uh, went into general practice. And in 2013, she started to work with Winston-Salem Forsyth County Schools as an in-house counsel. In 2016, Ms. Jenkins became the general counsel for the school district, allowing her to help children. Professor Glazier also attended Wake Forest University School of Law, entered private practice, and in the 90s, Professor Glazier was on the Cumberland County Board of Education. Then starting in 2003, served as the Cumberland County State Representative until 2015. He currently is the Executive Director of the North Carolina Justice Center and is on the Governor's Commission to access to sound basic education, or also known as the Leandro Commission. Now, tonight's discussion is on a case that is almost 20 years old and has created debate, which seems to miss the importance of the whole case. It's about children. This shouldn't be a discussion that keeps failing. The General Assembly needs to stop playing with the children's of North Carolina's future and fund education. As Professor Lukasik will demonstrate, there's a con- constitutional ground for this funding. Ms. Jenkins will also explain how a school district ensures a child's right to a sound basic education. And Professor Glazier will explain the debates from the General Assembly and the Leandro Commission. Now, I would like to hand over the baton to Professor Lukasik. Thank you, Jenna, for that introduction and for organizing this important conversation. I appreciate both, and I'm delighted and honored to participate with this panel. As you recognize, the Leandro litigation and its outcome are critical to the state and its future. 
it has long been recognized that education is perhaps the most important function of state and local governments. As the United States Supreme Court famously recognized in Brown versus Board of Education, it's doubtful that any child may reasonably be expected to succeed in life if he's denied the opportunity of an education. So I jumped at the opportunity to provide an overview of North Carolina's arguably most significant education case, Leandro v. State. Um, but Jenna, when you clarify that I should be prepared to complete this overview in 15 minutes, I will confess I had some doubt. As former U.S. Secretary of Education William Bennett is quoted as saying, there are greater, more certain, and more immediate penalties in this country for serving up a single rotten hamburger than for furnishing a thousand school children with a rotten education. Um, and in fact, North Carolina's Leandro litigation has spanned more than two decades, and it has yet to be fully resolved. There is no quick resolution or quick overview here. The original named plaintiff, Leandro himself, has graduated from high school, graduated from college, graduated from law school, and embarked on a substantial career since he originally filed his complaint. So there's a lot of ground to cover in 15 minutes, and I'm going to work to keep my remarks within that time allotted. Um, to set the stage for our focus on the current status of the case, what it looks like in the schools today, and um, the conversation that's being had in the General Assembly. Um, so I prepared a PowerPoint presentation that I hope will help keep me on track. So I hope you don't mind if I share my screen um, briefly. And I appreciate that those on the anticipated podcast won't be able to see these slides, but those who are with us this evening should. So the Leandro litigation began in May 1994, when students and their parents or guardians from five relatively low wealth rural school systems in Cumberland, Halifax, Hoke, Robeson and Vance counties and the boards of education in those counties filed a complaint against the state of North Carolina and the state board of education. Those original um, rural counties are highlighted in yellow on this map of North Carolina. These plaintiffs alleged that their constitutional rights were violated by schools with inadequate facilities, insufficient space, poor lighting, leaking roofs, erratic heating and air conditioning, peeling paint, cracked plaster, rusting exposed pipes, they alleged that their libraries had sparse and outdated books and lacked technology. They asserted that they could not hire and retain quality teachers because local salary supplements were well below those in wealthier districts. And they alleged that the inability to hire teachers left them with higher student-teacher ratios than acceptable. And the, the effects of these poor conditions and insufficient teachers left students undereducated as reflected in weak college admission test scores and weak end of grade test performance. This, according to the plaintiffs, um, showed that the children in these districts are falling behind and failing in basic subjects. The plaintiffs brought their original claim in Halifax County and the defendants moved to transfer venue to Wake here in Raleigh. And the trial court granted the state's motion and placed the case in Wake County Superior Court where it still resides. Within five months of the original complaint in October 1994, six relatively wealthy and more urban districts, Buncombe County and the city of Asheville, 
Durham, Forsyth, Mecklenburg, and Wake. Um, that's Charlotte, Raleigh, Winston-Salem. Um, they were permitted to intervene. And these districts you'll see underlined in blue on this map of the state. You'll see that Buncombe and Asheville County count as, or Ash, Buncombe County and Asheville City, excuse me, count as two school systems because they're not merged as a single countywide system. These wealthier districts alleged that the current state educational funding system does not sufficiently take into consideration the unique burdens um, that urban areas face. They argued that they have to educate a large number of students with extraordinary educational needs. Notably, the urban district said they needed to educate a large number of students who require special education services, special English language instruction, and supplemental academically gifted programs, and that providing these services required them to divert resources away from regular education programs into these exceptional um, programs. With those allegations on the table, the plaintiffs and plaintiff interveners sought declaratively, declaratory and injunctive relief on two key allegations. First, that they, the children in these counties and the boards of education have a right under the state constitution to a qualitatively adequate educational opportunity, which they alleged was being denied to them under the current funding system. And second, they alleged that the North Carolina Constitution not only creates a fundamental right to a qualitatively sound basic education, but also it guarantees that every child, no matter where he or she resides, is entitled to equal educational opportunities. On the first allegation that plaintiffs and every child in the state have a right to a qualitatively adequate education, the plaintiffs ultimately prevailed. On the second allegation, that plaintiffs are entitled to equal educational opportunities through equal funding and services, the plaintiffs ultimately lost. The plaintiffs raised these claims under two key provisions of the North Carolina Constitution. The first and most fundamental provision for purposes of the Leandro litigation appears in Article 1 and on this slide. It states, the people have the right to the privilege of education, and it is the duty of the state to guard and maintain that right. In other words, the North Carolina Constitution, unlike the federal constitution, explicitly guarantees a right to an education. It expressly guarantees a constitutional floor of educational opportunity. And equally important for today's conversation, the North Carolina Constitution declares that it is the duty of the state to guard and maintain that right. The second key constitutional provision that the plaintiffs turned to is in Article 9, Section 2. And this provision in the North Carolina Constitution explicitly requires that equal opportunities shall be provided for all students. Article 9 in the state constitution is actually comprised of 10 subsections, all of which are devoted to education. But this particular section, Section 2 in Article 9, emphasizing equal opportunities, was the second most significant provision relied on the plaintiffs to make their case. So the plaintiffs and the, um, plaintiff interveners came forward in 1994 seeking declaratory and injunctive relief, emphasizing these two provisions, although also relying on other provisions in the Constitution and a number of state statutes. What came next? 
Plaintiff's complaint was initially met with a motion to dismiss by the state. The state said, there is no such claim. These allegations don't sufficiently assert a basis for relief and the claim should be dismissed. The trial court denied the state's motion to dismiss on all claims, allowing all of the plaintiff's claims to go forward. So the state appealed. The North Carolina Court of Appeals reversed the trial court and concluded that none of the plaintiff's claims, not under Article 1 or under Article 9, were justiciable, and they remanded the case for dismissal. The North Carolina Court of Appeals concluded that the state constitution guaranteed access only to the existing system of schools and did not embrace a qualitative standard or require equality of opportunity across districts. After the plaintiffs lost before the Court of Appeals, the plaintiffs then petitioned the North Carolina Supreme Court for discretionary review on the basis that this case presented substantial constitutional questions. And it seems pretty apparent that it did. The Supreme Court agreed and heard this appeal. The appeal ultimately led in 1997 to what is now known as the, with a capital T, Leandro decision. The Supreme Court reviewed both issues presented by the plaintiff. On the first issue, whether the Constitution guarantees a qualitatively adequate education, the court held in favor of the plaintiffs. And the court stated, we conclude that Article 1, Section 15, and Article 9, Section 2 of the North Carolina Constitution combine to guarantee every child of this state an opportunity to receive a sound basic education. On the second issue, whether the Constitution guarantees absolutely equal educational opportunities to every child, the court rejected the plaintiff's claim. The court determined that the right to a sound basic education does not require substantially equal funding or equal educational advantages in all schools. So the plaintiffs prevailed on the first question and they did not prevail on the second question. The court went on in 1997 to detail what that right to a sound basic education in the North Carolina Constitution looked like. And the court identified specific quantitative components, a floor beneath which the state cannot slip without violating Article 1, Section 15 and Article 9, Section 2 of the state constitution. So since 1997 in Leandro 1, it's been clear that the constitution guarantees to all children in the state, wherever they reside, an opportunity to an education that at least provides sufficient ability, and this is just a quote from the North Carolina Supreme Court, sufficient ability to read, write, and speak the English language and a sufficient knowledge of fundamental mathematics and physical science to enable the student to function in a complex and rapidly changing society, sufficient fundamental knowledge of geography, history, and basic economic and political systems to enable the student to make informed choices with regard to issues that affect the student personally or affect the student's community, state, and nation, sufficient academic and vocational skills to enable the student to successfully engage in post-secondary education or vocational training, and sufficient academic and vocational skills to enable the student to compete on an equal basis with others in further formal education or gainful employment in contemporary society. 
But goodness, um, since the Supreme Court reached this decision in 1997, nearly 25 years ago, it's been very slow going as the state has worked to provide a remedy in instances where students are denied this opportunity or students are not receiving an opportunity to realize these basics of a sound basic education. The remedy has been elusive. So what's been going on from 1997 to today? It's a lot, um, it's a lot. And this timeline is pretty jam packed on this slide, but it attempts to highlight the major milestones in the Leandro litigation process since the original plaintiffs, those low wealth rural districts filed their complaint in 1994 and the court declared and defined the constitutional right um, to a sound basic education in 1997. In that same year that the court rendered the Leandro decision, Leandro won in 1997, then Chief Justice Burley Mitchell, a Democrat of the North Carolina Supreme Court, appointed Superior Court Judge Howard Manning, a Republican, to oversee the Leandro litigation in Wake County Superior Court. Judge Manning was charged with gathering evidence and making findings and reaching conclusions based on that evidence on the question of whether the state was, was satisfying its constitutional obligation to provide all of these things that are embodied in a sound basic education to the children in North Carolina. Judge Manning began his work by convening a meeting with all of the parties. Remember, there are individual children and their families, school districts from rural and now plaintiff intervener urban districts. And in that meeting, they agreed to bifurcate the trial, bifurcate the original litigation process and address the claims of the rural districts, Hoke, Halifax, Vance, Cumberland, and Robeson first, and to hold off on um, discovery and beginning in the trial with the plaintiff intervener urban districts. Then once he'd narrowed the initial trial um, in that way, Judge Manning limited it again. And he determined that a single district from among the rural districts, Hoke County, would serve as a representative plaintiff and that the evidence in the case at trial would be related to Hoke County and whether the students and the district in Hoke County were receiving um, what the constitutional floor provided. So with those limitations on the gathering of evidence in the initial trial, Judge Manning commenced discoveries. The parties began to exchange evidence. Um, the trial ultimately convinced, commenced and it lasted for over 14 months and generated an eight volume record on appeal. In 2002, in a series of four written orders that totaled over 400 pages, Judge Manning found that the evidence supported plaintiff's claim that the state was violating the right of the children and district in Hope County to an opportunity to receive a sound basic education. Judge Manning considered all manner of facts in the course of that trial, including but not limited to student outputs. And he focused on um, scores and standardized test scores in Hope County compared to other areas of the state, dropout rates, graduation rates, employment potential. Um, Hope County employers had testified that Hope County high school graduates are not qualified to perform even the basic tasks that are needed for the jobs that are available in that community. Um, he looked at post-secondary educational rates and performance and found that 55% of Hope County high school graduates required remedial courses in basic subjects like reading and math. 
when they attempted to enroll in community college, um, and that when they did enroll in those re remedial courses in reading and math, their scores were poor. They had a D plus average in remedial reading in community college and a C minus average in remedial math courses in um, community college. And with this evidence, Judge Manning found that the state violated the constitutional rights of the children in Hope County by failing to provide an opportunity to access a sound basic education. And he ordered the state to remedy that violation, provide competent teachers, competent principals, and the resources necessary to support effective instruction to the children. Judge Manning also specifically ordered the state to provide pre-K instruction for at-risk children to ensure that they arrived at kindergarten ready to learn. The state appealed, of course, um, and they sought an appeal directly to the state Supreme Court bypassing the Court of Appeals because it presented a question of such importance. So in 2004, the state Supreme Court heard the direct appeal of Judge Manning's original order finding and concluding a constitutional violation in Hope County. In a decision written by then Justice Orr, another Republican, the North Carolina Supreme Court affirmed everything in Judge Manning's order except the command that the state provide pre-K instruction to at-risk children. In other words, the North Carolina Supreme Court found that the plaintiff's constitutional rights to an opportunity for a sound basic education had been and were being violated but the court also held that the state should have been permitted to propose its own constitutional remedy regarding at-risk children before the specific remedy of pre-K was ordered by the court. Of course, um, in 2004, the Supreme Court also reminded that the pending cases involving the other rural districts or the urban districts should now go ahead and proceed consistent with the tenets of its opinion. So back to the trial court, the case went. You can see in the tension between Judge Manning's original order um, regarding the prison of pre-K and the state's objection to that specific obligation to um, provide a particular educational service. You can see the tension that we see um, today still in what some have called the constitutional showdown between the judiciary and the legislature over how to implement the current remedial plan. But I digress. Back to Leandra. Um, after the Supreme Court affirmed this violation um, and gave the state via the legislature time to correct its um, deficiency, the litigation continued. Um, and in 2006, um, the plaintiff intervenors, all of the urban districts except the Charlotte Mecklenburg schools took voluntary dismissals from the case. Um, so the only urban district remaining in the claim after 2006 was Charlotte Mech. In 2011, the General Assembly passed a piece of legislation that modified the pre-K program that had been put into place in ways that would limit access. Judge Manning jumped in and ordered the state not to implement any law or regulation that would deny eligible at-risk children admission to that pre-K program. The state appealed the order, but this time the North Carolina Court of Appeals affirmed Judge Manning's order. Why? because the court said the state had had an opportunity over six years to come with its own remedy for at-risk kids and the state picked pre-K. So it needed to make that remedy available without limit. 
As the court considered Judge Manning's order, the General Assembly, of course, substantially amended the relevant legislation and lifted the limits on access to pre-K. So when the case ultimately got to the North Carolina Supreme Court in 2013, the North Carolina Supreme Court, in a per curiam opinion, held that the changes to the legislation made in 2012 by the General Assembly made that controversy moot. And so the Supreme Court vacated as moot the Court of Appeals decision and remanded with instructions to vacate um, Judge Manning's order on that as well. But the state was still obligated to inform the court of its progress in remedying the constitutional violation. So Judge Manning called a hearing in April 2015 and ordered the state to provide a, quote, definite plan of action to comply with the constitutional mandates um, beyond those available to at-risk children through pre-K. The, court, the trial court held a hearing on the state's proposed plan in July 2012, and Judge Man Manning reached the mandatory retirement age for judges in North Carolina, I believe it's 72, just after, is it, I can see Professor Glazier nodding, I think it's 72, Judge Manning reached that age just after the July 2015 hearing on the plan. Judge Manning ordered another hearing in November, intending to return to the bench in a special status um, that's available to retired judges, but there was a delay and a shift in plans when health conditions prevented him from returning. So on October 7th, 2016, then Chief Justice Mark Martin, a Republican who now serves as Dean of the Regent University School of Law, assigned Leandro to Judge W. David Lee. And although Judge Lee had retired from his elected position, he was then serving as an emergency judge in Superior Court. So he was available to be assigned to Leandro. Um, in 2017, just after Judge Lee had taken over the case, the state board asked to be released. Judge Lee denied that request and concluded that neither the state board nor the state itself had yet met their burden of demonstrating substantial compliance with Leandro directives and that the state board had a significant non-delegable role in affording those constitutional entitlements. Also, Professor Glazier in 2017, I believe that is when the governor established the Leandro Commission, or what is officially called the Governor's Commission on Access to a Sound Basic Education. Um, and that commission that Professor Glazier sits on was tasked to focus on the three pillars of Leandro, qualified teachers, qualified principals, and adequate resources. In January 2020, at a hearing before Judge Lee, Judge Lee heard from the parties and then issued findings of fact, conclusions of law, and orders for next steps, and he held that it is the, quote, state's duty to implement the fiscal, programmatic, and strategic steps necessary to ensure that the components of the Leandro Meridial Plan are in place and ultimately to achieve the outcomes for students required by the Constitution. All of the parties agreed to the findings of fact and conclusions of law in that January 2020 decision, so it was not appealed. And when Judge Lee in that order was talking about ensuring that the components of the plan were in place, he was talking about ensuring these seven pillars of the anticipated remedial plan um, that had evolved through the course of this litigation. Nine months later, on September 1st, um, Judge Lee entered a consent order through which all the parties agreed to develop a plan of action within 60 days. But in December 2020, 
Judge Lee granted an extension to the governor and the Board of Education to allow them more time to present an eight-year plan to implement these recommendations, which found their origins both in a private consultant's recommendation, the West Ed consultant's recommendations, and the recommendations of the Leandro Commission on which Judge Leisure sits. So they were, the, the plan at, at issue was sort of a compilation of these things. Um, and obviously the pandemic disrupted progress, but in March of 2021, um, a comprehensive eight-year plan that would achieve the remedy required for the ongoing constitutional violation was submitted to the court. And that plan built off the work of the West Ed report and the recommendations of the Leandro Commission. Last summer, um, I think it was June in 2021, Judge Lee signed an order requiring the state to implement that comprehensive plan. The plan that included um, requiring the state to um, provide competent teachers, competent principals, sufficient funding to meet the educational requirements of Leandro, an assessment and accountability system that allowed measurement of student performance as against the Leandro standard, assistance for those students and systems where um, assessment showed that they were not meeting that measure. Um, a system of pre-K and a realignment of um, K, you know, public school, K through 12 um, educational um, opportunities so that it aligns with the expectations of post-secondary institutions, community colleges, colleges and universities and the workforce. So those were the key components of the plan that um, Judge Lee ordered the state to implement. Just as this semester of law school was beginning in September, the General Assembly still didn't have a budget passed and no potential budget proposals were sufficient to fully fund this plan. Um, so in October um, last month, Judge Lee ordered the parties to submit to him suggestions on how to hold lawmakers accountable for the ongoing failure to fund the resources necessary to cure the constitutional violation first identified in the trial court in 2002 um, and affirmed by the North Carolina Supreme Court in 2004. And in two days on November 10th, Judge Lee is gonna hold a hearing, I believe on how to um, enforce his order that the state implement the comprehensive remedial plan. Plaintiffs submitted briefs on that question November 1, and you can find those in readily available public sources. And defendants submitted their briefs on that today, November 8, 2021. So where are we now? Um, recognizing how Leandro began and what has happened, um, Jenna invited me to share one final thought that I also think is notable um, about the broader impact of Leandro beyond its core. It is, the core of Leandro is a big deal. It's a big deal that our state Supreme Court recognized in Leandro that our children are constitutionally entitled to an opportunity to receive a sound basic education. But since Leandro, myriad new plaintiffs have sought relief in myriad new situations by relying on that Leandro holding. Um, and we've seen the Supreme Court in a series of cases, some of which I identified here, clarify what this right means and how far it extends. 
plaintiffs have asserted a violation of the constitutional right to a sound basic education when, for example, a child was suspended from school for fighting without being provided access to an alternative educational program while out on suspension. Plaintiffs have asserted a violation of the constitutional right to a sound basic education when, for example, a child is repeatedly harassed and bullied by other students at school, creating an environment in which the child could not learn when the school personnel acted with indifference to that bullying as it was ongoing. Each of these cases following Leandro and asserting the right in a new context allows the Supreme Court to further clarify the meaning and reach of that right. So this decision has had considerable impacts even beyond its initial holding. And that's my quickest possible review of this very long litigation from 1994 through today. Thank you, Jenna. Um, and I am very much looking forward to learning from um, Ms. Jenkins and Professor Glazier on their segments of this conversation. Thank you, Professor Lukasik. I know that I asked you for the impossible <laughs> with the 15 minutes. Um, now, I would like to uh, go to Ms. Jenkins to really understand what it looks like in a school district to achieve a sound basic education for each child. And as mentioned, uh, Ms. Jenkins is uh, Forsyth County's general counsel. Um, so she gets a day-to-day -day interaction <laughs> uh, with the school at, uh, to achieve this. So uh, Ms. Jenkins, what does it look like for a sound basic education in practice in the school district? Thank you, and, and thank you so much, um, Professor Lukasik for that wonderful thorough overview of Leandro. Um, as you, you know, alluded to, and as you mentioned, this is something that school districts across the state are challenged with on a regular basis. And it's kind of hard to answer the question of, you know, what does it look like in a school system to provide a sound basic education? Because it's so many different things. You know, students are at the heart of what we do. And ultimately everything that school districts do should be designed around, you know, the needs of the student. And that's the academic needs, as well as, you know, I think social emotional needs of the student as well. That, you know, the social emotional component isn't really touched on so much necessarily in the remedial plan, but, you know, I believe that in order to provide a sound basic education for students, you have to address the barriers to that education. And a lot of times those barriers are social and emotional. So to give a few examples of what this, you know, looks like in a school district, um, I want to touch on a few of the main components of this remedial plan and, you know, the four main kind of categories of the original Leandro decision. And um, it, I think it starts with the it starts with the staff. So it starts with the teachers and it starts with the principals who are the site based managers of their individual school buildings. You know, obviously having a, um, a strong, competent teacher is incredibly important. And um, a lot of what comes into that are the recruitment efforts of the district. So school systems. Um, one of their main goals is to recruit highly qualified, highly competent teachers to go into the classrooms. Um, one of the areas where I think school systems struggle, which um, goes directly to this requirement for Leandro, is not only in finding and, and hiring highly competent teachers, but in retaining them. Um, and, and 
that brings in some of the financial piece of this too, is how do school districts retain those highly qualified, highly competent teachers? So a lot of that goes into the funding. Um, I think you'll see that, you know, when it comes to teacher salaries, you know, North Carolina ranks in the lower end when compared to other districts. Um, part of that's a state issue, but many districts have taken it upon themselves to provide additional um, supplemental supports for teachers as a way of retaining teachers in that district, uh, especially highly qualified, highly competent teachers. Um, and you'll see, you know, a lot of the, I'll just speak, for example, from Forsyth County, you know, Forsyth County, Guilford County, Charlotte Mecklenburg and Wake are all, I think, fairly similar in, um, in the way they approach those additional financial supports for teachers. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot more that goes into um, having competent teachers, but that's just one piece of it. And that's one element that local school districts have more control over when it comes to the salary and compensation of teachers. Um, but in addition to that, um, as alluded to in the remedial plan, school districts also have a system of evaluation that they utilize to ensure that teachers continue to provide academic support and to meet and, meet and address the academic needs of their students. Um, and so when it comes to that um, assessment piece that was alluded to in, in Professor Lukasik's presentation, school districts have to adhere to a system of evaluation that is um, that's been established by the state. Now, what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis varies from school district to school district, but there are, um, you know, there are observations, peer observations, teacher observations, um, other types of professional development that is provided to teachers that might be struggling, especially earlier on in their career. All of that goes to ultimately get, you know, addressing the academic needs of the student, which is based in Leandro. So that's just another example. Um, so teachers and principals, same thing for principals. There's an evaluation system, there's an assessment system, and there's also various ways that school districts recruit or look for ways to recruit highly qualified principals so that they can um, be the, the site-based leaders um, in their districts. There's also a series of professional development opportunities that are provided for principals as well as teachers, um, which ultimately, again, the goal of that is to make sure that the 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 people who are in the classroom providing the instruction to the students are, um, are qualified and continue to maintain um, uh, that, you know, that level of competency as it relates to delivering instruction to students. So that's the really the first area. Um, the next area I wanted to touch on obviously deals with the curriculum and the instruction and the, the various academic programs that are provided for students on a regular basis. Um, you know, there are state board policies that dictate, you know, how many credits students have to have to graduate and what types of classes and that sort of thing that that students have to have to graduate. And so school districts are bound to adhere to those state board policies. But there also are other courses, other programs that can be provided for students that aren't necessarily within the state board policies that districts have, you know, more local control over. Um, examples of those are CTE offerings. You know, the, the Leandro cases address um, vocational opportunities and preparing students for what's next in their career, whether that be, um, you know, college, community college, or to go into the workforce. Well, just an example of how local districts will address those issues um, are, you know, the CTE offerings that are that are provided in those districts. I know Winston-Salem Forsyth County has a pretty robust 
CTE program that allows students to gain additional skills to prepare them to either enter the workforce or prepare them for post-secondary education. Um, there also are enhanced um, internship and workforce opportunities for students as well, um, some of which have been provided by the state via their state policies, um, but also local school districts that have the capacity and the funding to enhance those programs have chosen to do that as well. Um, in addition to that, I mentioned earlier the social emotional component. There's um, additional, you know, opportunities provided to students, especially students that have, have been identified as at risk, um, especially students who might have, you know, behavioral or, or other concerns that need to be addressed um, and must be addressed by the school district. Um, an example of that would be the requirement to provide alternative educational services for students that are suspended from school. And so Professor Lukasik referenced um, a case where there was um, a student that was suspended from school for fighting and, and there was no um, educational opportunity afforded during that term of suspension. Well, by law, school districts are required, but whenever they're going to consider recommending a long-term suspension of a student, they're required to consider whether or not alternative educational services would be appropriate during that time. Now, the statute affords, I think, five or six scenarios where it might not be appropriate to provide alternative educational services during that long-term suspension, but the by default, we're supposed to to consider that and supposed to provide that. And that looks different from district to district. Um, it could be an alternative school where that student would would continue to get academic services. Um, it could be some sort of a virtual program. You know, there's lots of different opportunities for that. But that's, uh, you know, I think a, a byproduct of the Leandro case. You can't just suspend a student and, and just say, oh, we're not going to provide them any educational services. Um, that's something that school districts are required to do. Um, in addition to that, there's, um, you know, school districts have a series of policies that address other types of behavioral concerns that could potentially impact a student's access to education. Um, Professor Lukasik mentioned the bullying and harassment. Um, there also are other supports that are offered school counselors that are um, at school districts that can provide, you know, preventative supports and um, additional help that's needed for school districts. I will say though, that I think one of the, to the funding piece of this, one of the challenges that school districts face is that a lot of those positions for which are state funded, um, there aren't enough of those positions in schools. So there's not enough school nurses, there's, there are not enough school psychologists or school counselors in many districts to really address the social emotional needs of students. And these needs are in many cases um, impacting those students' ability to learn and to, to access their, um, their curriculum. And so those are, those are challenges that I think a lot of larger districts face is having those you know, having those people in the building to provide those supports for students. I think you could ask probably any school district, especially the larger districts, um, you know, are they, in, if you could, if you could hire more personnel, <laughs> um, you know, it, aside from teachers, who would you hire? And I think they would say probably counselors, psychologists, and nurses. Um, and, but that's a challenge that every district I think is, is facing right now. Um, and then the last area that I would touch on just briefly as it relates to Leandro is, you know, what sorts of facilities um, and the, the condition of those facilities, as well as the location of those facilities. So, you know, local um, school districts are responsible, obviously, for making decisions about 
you know, where programs will be located. Um, so considering the equity in the location and placement of certain special programs across the district. Um, also, when school districts reach capacity, you know, decisions have to be made about how do we expand our facilities? Um, you know, that could look like adding additional trailers, adding additional pods to schools, but sometimes it's a decision about, do we need to build a school? Do we need to renovate a school that is older and run down because the facilities at that school are just inadequate or insufficient? You know, all of these decisions ultimately impact the, the quality of the education that the students receive at that location and where there are inequities in those facilities that could lead to inequitable outcomes um, academic outcomes for students. And so on a day-to-day -day basis, school districts are, are trying to assess the facility needs of their buildings and, you know, either do they need to expand, do they need to repair, replace, or renovate those facilities so that there's there are equitable educational opportunities for students. So I want to be mindful of the time, but I wanted to touch on a couple of those areas, and then I'm happy to take any questions at the end from anyone on the panel or anyone who's participating. Oh, thank you, Ms. Jenkins. That was a great insight. I wouldn't have, uh, like I knew school funding was complicated, but that was quite a breakdown. So I do appreciate it. Um, now the court, as uh, Professor Lukasik uh, mentioned, it's been over 25 years and they gave deference to the General Assembly originally to fix the education funding. And as we are aware, uh, they have still failed to meet this requirement. And it's turned now into a political debate between the legislative branch and the judicial powers, all while children are still not getting their constitutional right to a sound basic education. And to help us pierce through these debates is Professor Glazier. Now, Professor Glazier, can you explain what is happening um, in the General Assembly with the case? Oh, uh, explaining what's happening in the General Assembly may be beyond my power, um, but over the course of time, um, and Professor Lukasik said it out um, quite succinctly, um, there have been a series of court orders. There has been uh, there have been efforts over the course of two decades to increase resources, particularly into at-risk capacities, by the development of the Low Wealth Fund by the development of um, uh, disadvantaged student funding, but never uh, fully funding those formulas, nor were those formulas sufficient to meet constitutional basis. I think it's important to remember that there are, there are a lot of policies and programs as, as um, Ms. Jenkins talked about and Professor Lukasik talked about, but at its core, um, there has to be adequate resources to fund the capacity, um, both with personnel, with programmatic and with technology concerns, and with all of the things that go into making a, 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 a competent, a, a well-trained teacher, well-trained principal, and meeting the extraordinary disadvantages that a lot of our students, over 22% of whom live in poverty in North Carolina, uh, bring to schoolhouse doors. And so the General Assembly certainly tried, um, particularly in the late 90s and in the early 2000s, to do some of that, but studiously avoided uh, looking at what adequacy was and what was really needed. 
Um, and that was under Democratic governors and Democratic legislature. And I was in the legislature. There were large efforts to close the gap, but I don't. I, there were also large efforts uh, to avoid the constitutional mandate um, and, and what it really meant in terms of real dollars. Um, what changed in 2010, aside from the composition of the legislature, was a dramatic uh, cutback in resources, not, not an increase, but a cutback. There was in a three-year period, the elimination of two-thirds of the teacher assistance in this state, the elimination of over 4,500 teaching jobs, the elimination of all mentor pay, um, the elimination of professional development money, the elimination of master's pay for teachers. Um, there was a, 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 a truly uh, deep cut into uh, where the teacher pay raises had been keeping us in the middle of the country. Uh, we became, as, as Ms. Jenkins and Ms. Lucas and Professor Lukasik said, uh, near the end of the line. Uh, some studies ranking us near last in the country in terms of comparative compensation uh, for our teachers. Um, there were cuts to um, central services um, administrative support for school districts. There was the elimination at one point of textbook money. Uh, there was uh, cuts to digital capacity at a time when they needed to be up surging. So there were harsh uh, cuts to the school system over a six or seven year period, which essentially compounded uh, the findings uh, Judge Manning had made uh, with regard to um, uh, the effect on, on children and uh, the ability uh, to create uh, sound basic education. Governor Cooper when he came into office uh, was the first governor, Democrat or Republican, who actually said, we're going to resolve this um, and did so on two ways. One, he created um, and agreed uh, to uh, join with the plaintiffs and plaintiff interveners um, to fund a consultant and to have the, uh, with private money and public money, a combination. Uh, to, which turned out to be perhaps the best school finance study in the history of school finance studies from West Ed Consultants, which took about eight, about 20 months to complete. And uh, that study found that in fact, this state has operated all this time in an unconstitutional way, exacerbated and exaggerated um, since the start of the lawsuit by the cuts to funding and resources for school districts. Um, and it has essentially found that we were operating unconstitutionally, had been, and it is far worse than when the lawsuit was filed. Um, it also found um, uh, uh, and developed uh, a whole series of remedial measures, some actually about 140 of them, I think, totaled in the report, um, as a way to look at an eight-year plan, a comprehensive remedial plan to um, bring back uh, the state uh, to meet its constitutional minimum as required by Leandra one. It also in the subsequent uh, um, edition of the report created a funding mechanism or created a funding um, uh, uh, scheme that would essentially bring in about, require about $6 billion over an eight year period uh, to bring the system into constitutional compliance. Um, that report formed the basis of the order that Professor Lukasik is talking about, which is a consent order. And so for the first time that occurred under Governor Cooper at, in conjunction with 
the Leandro Commission he's appointed that I serve on, whose job it was to look at the politics and the reality of the West End report and give the governor guidance on whether to fully adopt that report or portions of the report. And in fact, the Leandro Commission report and the West End report had substantial overlap in both its findings and its suggestions. Um, that consent order is what it says. It is now a consent judgment in the court. There's no longer a question of what the Constitution of North Carolina mandates. There's no longer a question of what's required to remedy the constitutional defect. And on top of which, there's also no question that the state has sufficient fiscal resources without a tax increase to meet the first several years of the requirements of that eight-year plan. And now we await, and where we are is a budget. And we were without a budget for the last um, two years. And we are still without a budget. Uh, normally, one would have been produced in July. And one of the big issues that sits on the table that the legislature is having a discussion with the governor on is the funding of that Leandro plan. What I think seems certain based on the initial um, uh, House report and Senate budget report, the House funded about 30% of the Leandro plan. Uh, the Senate funded about 17% of the Leandro plan. I think from what's happening, and we expect to have a budget conference report by Monday um, that may be voted on by Monday of next week, um, is that they're likely to be funding somewhere in the 40 to 50% of the Leandro plan, so better than either the House or the Senate, but not nearly anything that's going to put us in compliance, which will then lead to uh, Judge Lee's having to uh, follow through on what he has said he's going to do, which is 25 years is enough. Um, and, and if the legislature after 25 years and now years in the making with the Leandro Westhead report and the, and the consent judgment um, will not meet its constitutional mandate, will not live up to the oath each legislator swears to to uphold the constitution, uh, then he is going to, I think, issue a remedy uh, that will either I, either direct the governor to withhold the money required by Leandro and disperse it to school systems pending a decision of his, an, a, an immediate appeal of his decision to likely the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Or he may do as that's happened in other states, Washington, Kansas come to mind, uh, fine the legislature, uh, hold them in contempt and fi or fine them directly the legislature a certain amount a day. I believe in uh, in, in uh, Washington, it was $100,000 a day until they comply with what's needed and what has been agreed upon by the state of North Carolina and the plaintiffs is the amount necessary to meet the constitutional mandate. And I think one of those things is likely to happen this, this week or in a couple weeks hence after the budget finally gets adopted. Um, but I think we are at an inflection point, um, a, a real decision to be made that will immediately be appealed no matter what it is, I'm sure, to the Supreme Court of North Carolina. And so it will be up to the court to finally decide. But here's where it's left, um, Jenna. If a court were to decide that there's a constitutional mandate um, that exists by agreement, a consent mandate that exists, funds exist to pay for that remedy and the legislature refuses to comply, it will render the constitution of North Carolina a nullity. 
And that I do not think the, the court will ever allow to happen. Um, so, so I think we are at a, a point where we may be seeing the end and in a sense, the beginning of an understanding that the legislature lives by its moral duty to uphold the constitution. And it has long and broad authority about how it allocates funds, but it doesn't have the authority to defy the constitutional mandate when those funds are needed to meet that constitutional mandate. That would give that branch a power over all the other branches, and that is not what the system was set up to do. I guess finally what I would say is, again, recognizing time and sorry for the long-winded answer, but again, it's not a short problem. Um, there, the, the legislature of North Carolina in its current majority has had several years to either appeal the decision of the order that Judge, orders that Judge Lee has entered or to intervene. Uh, it has us, we have a statute that allows it. I know, cause I was in the legislature when it was passed uh, and they've done nothing. They've done neither. You cannot sit by and waive every opportunity to participate in the lawsuit, to be heard, uh, to be a party effectively, and then turn around and say, oh, we weren't asked. That is, that is not a separation of powers question. That is an abrogation of responsibility. Um, and that is what's facing the decision at the legislature now. Um, and eventually, I think in the next few weeks, what will face the court. Uh, thank you, Professor Glazier. Um, and actually, thank you, uh, Ms. Jenkins and Professor Lukasik for uh, speaking with me tonight. This uh, case is amazing in the fact that it spans such a long period of time and you know, it involves so many different facets of the legal system. And so as a student, it's really interesting to examine. But then it's also a little scary as hopefully a potential future parent who would love to raise their children in North Carolina, kind of startled because, you know, I grew up in a state where my parents always said, you know, we vote for teachers. The state defends their teachers. And then watching you know, in high school, uh, once the economy uh, crashed, seeing that kind of melt away. So again, I appreciate you guys being here tonight. This is the Campbell Law Reporter. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform. This is the Campbell Law Reporter.